It's good to see you on Labor Day weekend. Thanks for making the journey in with us and and for being here this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. If you want to stick a thumb in Philippians, um, we'll be there here in just a second. And uh, where's Sam? You might grab that light there. Yeah, I'm going to give you a chance. Um, So Philippians chapter 1. And so we're in the middle of this series called Advance. And here's what we're basically talking about and have been talking about and will for the next couple of weeks is um, how God invites us into the story to play a part in advancing the mission of God forward or or how kind of the the way we've been articulating it is is moving the glory of God forward, extending the glory of God. That's how we're trying to talk about this. And and so here's kind of the, the point of this thing is that God invites you into the beauty of that story. And so, so let's start here this morning. Um, w- would you agree with this, that we have got a God who is moving? We have got a God who is on the move. Now, now here's what that, that statement would kind of lead you to believe, that we can go to the darkest places on the planet, and we would find a God who is at work there. Like we could go into the darkest tribe in Africa. We can go spend our time in Somalia, some of the most hostile places to the gospel. And we can find a God who is moving there. I don't care what sort of nation, people you want to go and investigate. I think we could all agree that the Bible is going to say that God is on the move and he is going to be on the move in all of those places. Okay, now, now here is the, the next part of that, though, that is so important. That God is not randomly moving. How, how I think of random movement is a seventh grader with pixie sticks. And I've seen that like for way too long, the last seven years of my life, way too many seventh graders and Dr. Peppers. They just don't go together very well. And so, um, so it's not random movement, but this is a God who ha- has purpose to his movement. Like when God moves, he is accomplishing something that he wants to do. And, and so maybe this is the way you could think about it, that God is on the move to accomplish his mission. So God moves for the mission. The mission determines and steers the movement of God. Now, now here's one of those verses that I love. Isaiah 46, um, 9 and 10 is going to tell us that there's no one like our God. He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, all those things to come. And then he's going to say this about it. That he's going to accomplish all that he wants. All that his purposes are going to come to fulfillment and to fruition. So we have got a God who is moving on the planet. And his movement is out to accomplish his purposes. Okay, now, now this was, I don't know if you've had those moments in life where you have these epiphanies. Like I'm talking about these major, like at this moment, you move past that moment and everything in life just looks and appears different to you. I, I'll give you a couple of those for me. One was as a seventh grader, um, when, when God ambushed me, he saved me. And so at that moment for me, it was a profound moment where everything in life now looks differently. Um, so, so that moment as a seventh grader, the whole direction of life, all of those things changed. It was, a, it was an epiphany. God is great. Serve him. Love him. Pursue him. Like that was a major big time moment for me. Another one came just in, and I would say the months and years following that, when it becomes real obvious that following Jesus is a little more difficult than it sounds. And sometimes like this process of sanctification or God working out our holiness in us, sometimes that feels much more like a crawl than a walk. And, and so for me, high school was probably marked by, dang, this is harder than it seemed. And, and so um, these high school days, like this was a major epiphany that um, this is going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of discipline to walk with God 
and to stay on course with God. Okay, now another epiphany came. Um, this probably happened in about uh, maybe my senior year in high school when um, allergies became this huge problem in, in me. I, I went for about three years, stopped up every day, and I looked at cats as one of the main contributors to that. So at that moment, I figured out that cats are no longer good, they're evil. Now, that was a major epiphany, still kind of working that, that thing out in me today. Here, here was the last one, and I would say since salvation, probably the biggest moment that has happened in me is when I finally started to see that the movement and the mission of God, all of that stuff, the mission of God, centers on the glory of God. That moment for me left, left everything in life in a different kind of category. Like that moment when, when it no longer, like the movement of God was no longer about my personal comfort. The movement of God was no longer about my safety. The, the movement of God, the mission of God was no longer about a paycheck. The mission of God was no longer about um, your house. The mission of God was no longer about the niceness of your stuff, how much stuff you could accumulate but that the mission of God was all about the glory of God. All about, maybe you could say it this way, all about extending the name of God, all about building the fame of God on planet earth. That is the mission of God. Welcome to the story of God, the mission of God. Okay, now, now here is the beauty of the scriptures. You have got a God who is moving, I mean an all-powerful ruler of the universe, a God that is, is strong, sovereign, providentially governs the affairs of everything on earth. So you have got this God who is moving, accomplishing this mission of his, about building the fame. Like, here's how Habakkuk's going to say it, that the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the land like waters cover the sea. Okay, so you've got a God doing all of that, and then him looking at you and I and saying, do you want to be a part of this? I mean, it's him looking at you and I, our families, our circle of influence, you and I, and saying, do you want to play a role in this? Do you want a part of the story? Do you want to come in and walk in the narrative with me? I will use you in this thing. I don't have to have you. I could do it all by myself if I want, but it's God. And this is like the consistent message of Scripture. Like if you go to Genesis 1 and just start reading forward, you're going to see him look at Noah and say, Noah, are you ready to play your role? Abraham, are you ready to play your role? Uh, okay, just keep moving forward. David, are you ready to play your role? Samuel, are you ready to play your role? Isaiah, are you ready to play your role? Paul, are you ready to play your role all the way to 21st century today? And then he looks at you and I and says, okay, I'm no longer talking to Moses. I'm talking to you. Do you want your piece of the story? Do you want your chance? And I want you to feel the weight of this again, though. We talked about this a lot last week. Your chance is so brief. Your chance is so short. If you're lucky, your 75 to 80 year window, not promised, unpredictable, but your window is going to pass you by that fast. And it's God saying, do you want to play your role in the story? Do you want your piece of this thing? Your joy, God's glory is at stake. Do you want your role in it? Okay, now here's what I want to settle in on this morning. Is saying yes to that 
saying yes to I want that role. I want to walk in that. Saying yes to that requires great risk from you and I. It requires that we are ready to step out in such a way that there's few promises to your temporal safety and to your temporal well-being. It requires risk. So, so here's going to be my question for you to start this morning off. Are you willing to risk well for the mission? Are you willing to risk everything for the glory of God? To risk everything for it. Okay, so this is where we're going to pick it up in Philippians. This is one of, I mean, this is a definite coffee cup sort of a verse. You're going to see it on t-shirts. It's been the theme of like a million sermons, a million events. Like this is everywhere. But I I want to throw the weight of this on you this morning because I think this is a life-changing couple of verses. This is a weighty couple of verses. It's a heavy couple of verses. And if we start to love these couple of verses, I think it's going to have a a major influence and it's going to be a difference maker for the rest of your life if you grow to love these verses. So here we go. This is Philippians chapter 1. Verse 20. And this is Paul speaking here. He's going to say this. I eagerly expect... So, I mean, there, there's some urgency to this. There, there is some um, weight to this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Now, let me just ask you this question. If you were to be ashamed, what would you be ashamed of? I just think about that. Like things that bring shame to you. What, what are those things that bring shame to you? And see if those things that bring shame to you are the same things that bring shame to Paul. Okay, now this is what's going to bring shame to Paul. I hope that in no way will I be ashamed. But this is the deal right here. But we'll have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. I mean, that's another way to say this is the mission of God. I mean, this is, a, this is Paul's way of articulating my life is wrapped around the mission. And the mission goes like for Paul, regardless of what happens, I want the name of Jesus exalted. Regardless of what goes down, I want to make sure that the fame of Jesus is built on my life and over my life. Regardless of how I live, I want the name of Jesus to be exalted. Okay, now when you become a Christian, have you thought about like this? Now, in, in Bible Belt world, you've got to step out of Bible Belt world for a second to see this, though. And you've got to get in Bible world. Okay, and when you're in Bible world and you see a person become a Christian, they step a lot, like across this line of faith, and now they are God's, and God is theirs. When that happens, there is a profound difference that occurs in their life. I mean, just think through the different people in scriptures that, that got saved that Jesus saves, think through those people and you're going to see a profound difference. It doesn't mean they were perfect, but I'll promise you a Peter before salvation and post-salvation is a different guy. Paul, pre-salvation and post-salvation, completely different guy. There is a profound change that happens in the heart of a person when God saves them. Now, now here's the way that, I, like one of the ways you could think about this change that happens. When God saves a person, the center point of their life goes from themselves to the mission of God. When a person is saved, and it doesn't mean it's like an instant, I wake up tomorrow and every, I mean, but 
I'm talking, there's a profound difference that plays out in your life. When you become one of God's, we go from the center point, like the defining circle in our life, being our mission, our goals, our hopes, our ambitions, to now they are God's dreams, God's ambitions, God's goals for us. There is a profound difference that happens when we become a Christian. And so Paul's articulating that. Here is the difference. This is what shames me. If I let go of the mission of God, can't do it. My life is wrapped around this thing. Okay, that's the mission. That's defining it. So let me ask you that question. Is that the center point for you? Is the center point in your life the mission of God? The mission of God. If it's anything different, at the end of the day, you're going to look back with regret. Is it the mission of God? Okay, now, now there, Paul's defining the mission, and then he's going to come in and say this. Look at this next phrase. I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as, al- as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. And then here comes the wrist. See if you can just see the wrist just bleed out of this, these, this next phrase, next four or five words. Whether by life or by death. Here's the mission of God. Here's what I'm giving my life to. And regardless of what it costs me, it's going to happen. Whether by life or by death, it's going down. Okay, now this is how I would define risk. You might want to write this down. It's any action that exposes someone to the possibility of loss or injury. So any sort of a decision you make, an action that you take that would expose you to the possibility of loss and injury. And and that's what Paul's saying here. The mission of God so governs my life that it's going to lead me into all these things and I'm willing to walk into those things knowing that it could cost everything. That's risk. Okay, now this is the consistent thing you see in Scripture. That people who are knee-deep in the mission of God, the mission of God governs, defines everything they do, they are all about risk. It leads them toward a risk-taking, courageous life. Okay, so let me give you a couple of examples of this. Last week in 1 Samuel 14, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want, it's going to be up on the screen for you. We looked at Jonathan last week. And and here's this picture of Jonathan. They've got literally... 600 Israelite soldiers. Two of them have swords. They are about to fight against the Philistine army. All of them have swords. There's 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And this is what they're going to say about the, Israel, or the Philistine army. There's as many of them, Philistines, as the sand in the seashore. That's a lot of people. And Jonathan gets this risk-taking idea, and it goes like this in 1 Samuel 14, 6. It's going to be up on the screen for you. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. In your translation, it might say, Perhaps the Lord will work for us. There's not a guarantee at the end of that game. There's not a, Okay, we're going to step out, me and you armor bearer and we're going to fight against 40 50 60,000 philistines me and you we're going to do this and there's no guarantee that it's going to turn out well there's no guarantee that their life's going to be spared there's no guarantee of victory there's no guarantee of any of that and jonathan and his armor bearer walk out into risk for the mission of god okay how about this one in esther 
Most of you know the story of Esther pretty well. You've got, um, you've got a guy who raises to power with this aim in mind, kind of getting this old vendetta out. He's going to kill, destroy, annihilate all the Jewish people. So he raises to power. He finally gets to a position where he can do it. And then in Esther 3.13, he sends this decree out that on this day, all the Jews are going to get slaughtered. We're going to kill them all. Mordecai tells Esther this. And then this is the words of Esther um, as she hears this news. She says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women also will fast as you do. Now listen to this statement. She says, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And literally the king could have her killed for this. You can't just show up there. She's got to be invited. So she's saying, listen, it could cost me my life here. And then she says this, and if I perish, I perish. I mean, isn't that a beautiful statement? That I'm going to go, I'm going to take this risk for the mission. I'm going to take this step for the mission of God. If I perish, I perish. If I get killed, I get killed. And if you know how the story turns out, um, God does this incredible thing where the tables are completely turned and and the glory of God is extended. But it's a beautiful, risk-taking passage. Here's the heart of Esther. She held the mission of God more tightly than her life. Now let me ask you this question. Do you hold the mission of God more tightly than your life? Do you hold the glory of God more tightly than your paycheck? Do you hold the glory of God more tightly than your family? Um, Bill and Denise Stewart are sitting right back here. They just sent their son, just graduated from college, to North Africa for two years on a journeyman program. A fairly hostile place to Christianity. And you know what I think that's great evidence of? I'm holding the mission of God more tightly than my boy. Maybe I could ask it this way for you. What is your grip in life most tightly around? What's it most tightly around? And this is what I think God is wanting us to get this morning. He is wanting us to hold the mission, the glory of God most tightly. Like, that is the thing that we have got the grip on. Everything else is open-handed and leveraged for that. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, The people of Israel are exiled, and and they find themselves in a completely foreign land. They kind of rise to the ranks, and all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar makes this decree. If you don't bow down to this golden image, you're all dead. Okay, so they don't do it. The king is outraged. And here's how the story goes down in Daniel chapter 3. I think it's going to be on the screen for you as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. God can do it. It's not when you take a step of faith and you risk that God can't do it. He can. He is completely sovereign. He has got the wherewithal to deliver you from anything. He is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But look at verse 18. But if not, 
But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Is that not a beautiful picture? I mean, okay, let's just make this apply to your life. If somebody comes to you with a gun to your head and says, bow down to whoever that's not God, what what are you going to do? How about this one? Just, Just say you don't love God. Five seconds of shame, right? I mean, anybody can endure in five seconds of shame. But not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're not doing it. They're not going to bow down. They're going to say, no, I, I hold the mission of God so tightly that it's more precious than my life is. It's more precious than me living another day. I, that's how valuable the mission is and the glory of God is. Um, okay, but they all don't turn out that way. Risk is right for the mission of God, but, but it, it doesn't always turn out well. Okay, h- how about this one? You've got John the Baptist, and he's going to do a risky thing. And I'll promise you, if you live this way, it's going to be risky for you. He's going to decide that he is going to call sin, sin. You do that anywhere in the world, it's risky. Okay, so you've got Herod. Herod had just decided, I'm going to walk out on my wife, and I'm going to get my brother's wife. So he does the deal. He makes the trade. And so now he's got his brother's wife, and John looks at that and says, you know what? That is what we call sin. It's not right. Okay, so now at that moment, um, there is no guarantee that's going to turn out well for John. There's no guarantee that um, you're going to live to 90 now. There's no guarantee of any of that. You've just called sin, sin to a guy that can imprison you, kill you, do whatever he wants to you, and there's really no repercussion. Okay, so, um, so here's how the story plays out. John gets imprisoned. So now he's in prison because he's called sin, sin. Herod's new wife is just looking for an opportunity to kill John. Um, Herod's daughter-in-law comes in and does this little birthday dance for Herod. And at the end of that, in just kind of this moment of, I'll do whatever you want, he says, just make a request and you've got it. And then listen to what it says in Matthew 14, verse 8. It goes like this. Prompted, this this daughter-in-law, prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and and John was beheaded in prison. It's really easy to read over that without thinking about it. You know? John calls sin, sin, because of that, thrown into prison. A daughter-in-law does a dance, asked for his head. Someone walks into a prison cell and says, John, put your head on the block. They take a sword or something, and they sever his head from his body. I mean, this guy is living in the will of God. It's not that he's rebelling. This guy is in the will of God. He is just called sin, sin, and this is the end game. Okay, now let me make this comment. Even when it turns out this way, risk is still right for the mission of God. Even when it doesn't turn out like you want it to, it's still right. Um, I... I there's a myth out there that I, I try really hard to explode whenever I can. 
And, and this statement that I'm going to tell you, you've all heard it before probably, and it was said in a right context, probably meant the right thing when she said it. But it's taken completely different in 21st century Bible Belt America. It goes like this. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Most of you have probably heard that. But here's the problem. What that means to 21st century Americans is if I live for God, nothing bad will happen to me. If I live for God, like here's how I think this plays out for us in this story with John. Um, as the guy is coming in with the sword, Jesus, I am living for you. I am standing for truth and this is what I get? This is how this thing plays out? I mean, there's a little bit of that in all of us. The safest place to be is not in the center of God's will. If you want to talk eternal security, yes, it is safe there. But if you're talking your temporal safety, it is not the safest place to be. It's the best place to be. It's the only place to live. It is where your joy will be found, but it's not the safest place to be. Our family heritage as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, is the exact opposite. Our family heritage is risk. Okay, Stephen Neal, he wrote this book called The History of Christian Missions. I would recommend that you get it and try to read through it at some point. It's called The History of Christian Missions. This is what he said about the early church, those who became believers in the early New Testament period. He said this, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. That is our family heritage. That when I sign up with Jesus... It is the most joy-filled place to live, but it's not the safest place to live. Okay, now if you just take a step back and look at Christian history, this plays out all across the narrative of history. I mean, we could go to Luther. This guy is hunted down like a dog to try to kill him. You could go to William Tyndale. Uh, William Tyndale, at this point in time, there was no Bible in the English language. There was a couple of great translations. They just weren't in English. So his goal was, I'm going to translate this into a, a language that people can understand, that English-speaking people can know and understand. It cost the lives of all of his close friends, and eventually his own, to get the Bible into English so people could read it. Um, last week, we were... L- kind of talking through this story of Adoniram Judson, costing his wife like six or seven of his 11 kids the mission of God. I mean, this is the family pedigree. This is what we have come from. Risk. Following God. The mission of God is more important, more valuable than you and I, our life, how long we live. Every saint knows this. It's not about how long, it's about how well you live. Okay, one more, and then, and then we'll wrap this up. In, uh, in Numbers 14, 13, 14, um, here's the context. Jesus, or God has busted the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt. I mean, he has set them free. They're in severe bondage. He is pulling them out of Egypt. He takes them through the wilderness, has this Red Sea experience where the waters part, the, the Egypt, or Egyptian army is completely slaughtered. I mean, it is a glorious day for the movement of God. He leads his people to the edge of the promised land. And this is God's part of the story where he's looking at the people of Israel and he is saying, come and play your part in this. This is your time to make your part known. This is your page in the story. 
They're looking over the promised land. They send these um, 12 spies in. 40 days later, they come back with this report in Numbers 13. The end of the chapter, it goes like this. It's going to be on the screen for you. Then Caleb silenced the people from before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. It's the voice of risk playing itself out. The mission of God is at stake and let's risk to see it happen. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread out among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Numbers 14, kind of skipping down to verse 4. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, that is an amazing couple of verses. These people had just been freed from, from Egypt. They had seen crazy, I, they had seen wonders of God that we would love to see. I mean, how many of you would love to see um, God leading by day with a, like a cloud and by night in a pillar of fire? That would sure simplify some decision making, you know? I mean, that would make life easy in a lot of ways. I mean, they have seen some wild things go down. They get on the edge of the promised land, not going. They seem too big. And you've got this voice of retreat happen where 10, 11 spies turned the entire nation back to the wilderness. And, and then look at Moses' response on behalf of the people. Um, in verse 20, Numbers 14, verse 20, he says this. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. There's God's mercy and the voice of our, like w when we retreat, we run from the battle, we run from the mission. Here is God's mercy. I have pardoned according to your word. But then look at verse 21. Here's the judgment. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in all the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years, and shall suffer. Your children will suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. So he's saying, listen, here's my mercy. I'm not sending you back into the bondage of Egypt, but here is my judgment. For the next 40 years, until all of you grown people die, you're going to wander in the wilderness. Every, every day we wake up and, and there is a road and there is a fork in it. And, and, and sli side one of this, let's just say the left side, it is the road of risk. And here's what, at the end of the day, the road of risk will lead you to. The road of risk leads to a life that advances the mission of God. Other end of that road, other side, is the road of retreat. And when we take the road of retreat, here's what it means for us. It's not that God's going to kill you tomorrow, but it means that you're going to wander in the wilderness, wasting your precious part in the story. So let me ask you this. What road is your life 
moving toward? Are you moving down the road of risk or the road of retreat? You know, it's so easy to look at the Israelites and think, what are you doing? I mean, you have got to be crazy. You have seen the miracles of God and you make this decision. You do this. Okay, so before we pass judgment on them, let's just catch up into 21st century language here. Um, we live currently in a world uh, of roughly s- in between 6 and 7 billion people. Out of those 6 to 7 billion people, 2 billion of them, 2 billion have never had an opportunity. It's not that they have willingly chose to, uh, never had an opportunity to hear an accurate gospel message. There's no KLTY going on. I mean, there's not preaching on every corner. There's not churches everywhere. We are talking never had the ability to hear, the opportunity to hear the gospel preached. To bring this into our neighborhoods, we live in neighborhoods that if you take, like if you can look behind the nice facade that is put up, you get behind the nice facade and you walk through the front door into the living room, you see families broken, you see a lack of hope. And you see people, I mean, they can chant the God thing, but they need a real encounter with the God of the universe. That is our neighborhoods. And far be it from us to condemn the people of Israel when we as churches, when we as families have retreated behind our front doors while the mission of God moves in front. So let me ask you, your life on the risk road, on the retreat road. Philippians 1. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, there is the risk. Whether by lot, that is our heritage. In the 1500s, um, Christian, this is Stephen Nilligan, History of Christian Missions. In, in the 1500s, Christianity makes, I uh, get splashes on the beach of Japan. It runs into Japan and it is spreading. The emperor at that time in Japan looked at this and says, this is a huge threat. This is not a good thing. So he puts the hammer on Christianity. And I'm talking, it was a brutal, I'm going to suck the life out of this and destroy this now. And, and on page 161 in this book, here's what it says about one of these instances where um, you have got the, the authority in Japan making it known that Christianity is not going to spread here. It goes like this. It was not until, late, and, and not until April 1617 that the first martyrdoms of Europeans took place in Japan a Jesuit and a Francian being beheaded, and a Dominican and an Augustinian a little later in the same area. Every kind of cruelty was practiced on the pitiful victims of the persecution. Crucifixion was the method usually employed in the case of Japanese Christians. On one occasion, 70 Japanese men, women, children, 70 Japanese were crucified upside down at low water, and were drowned as the tide came in. Now, if you'll stop and think about that scene, that means a daddy is 
nailed to a cross next to his wife, next to his little kids, knowing that it's a matter of time before the tide comes back in and they all suffocate. Okay, this is where this gets personal for me. Um, I, I try to make it my nightly just tradition to go and kind of put Hannah. We've got a 16, 17, almost 18-month-old now. I better get that right. 18-month-old that um, I, I try to put her down each night. And I'll pray like number six over her that there's going to be a day that God saves her. And right behind that, this is what I pray. That God would make her a risk-taker and that she would be courageous for the cause of Christ. Okay, now, when I think about what that could lead to as a daddy, there's like this little lump that kind of develops in your throat. And and it's me picturing this day of her coming back in and saying, Dad, I think God has called me to go to a dark place, a place that's hostile to the gospel, a place that I could die if I go, a place that, um, that doesn't want me there. And I think about what will my response be in that moment? Like in that moment of your little girl coming in and making that statement, how, how do you respond to that? And, and this is my hope in that moment, is that I will look at her in the eye, probably fighting back every sort of tear that I could imagine, And that I would say, baby, go for it. There's nothing that would make me more proud. And that I would send her out the door onto an airplane. Excited about her taking great risks for the cause of Christ. And my question is, as a dad, as a grandparent, what gives you that sort of a wherewithal? I mean... How do you do that, you know? Like, what gives us that sort of an ability? And, and I, the last phrase, verse 21 in Philippians 1, I think, is the answer. Paul says this, for to me, and daddy's in here, this needs to be for you. Not for Paul, but for you. And if you're single in here, this needs to be for you. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? To live as Christ and to die as gain. Because if you believe it, I think it alters all of life. It alters how we respond in those moments. It alters everything. For to me, for to Rodney, to live as Christ and to die as gain. The key to unlocking risk in your life and my life is to believe in the promises of God like this. That to live, if I'm going to if I'm going to live, Christ is the center. But for me, even if I die, it is gain for the mission of God. When when God makes all eternal risk, when He pulls all eternal risk out of the equation, it allows us to take every temporal risk imaginable. It allows us to do anything for the cause of Christ, knowing that the eternal is secure. So bow with me.
Um, I, I don't think risk for you and I necessarily has to look like overseas. Like, I, I want to make sure this is as practical as it is motivational for you. It, it doesn't mean that you have to, to be William Carey, you have to be Jim Elliott, you have to get on a plane tomorrow and send your... It doesn't mean that. Here's what risk on a practical just on a real practical level, looks like for you and me. And this is where I want to end today. Risk on a practical level is when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you obey it. That is risk. When the Holy Spirit prompts, when the Holy Spirit speaks, that you move with it. So I don't know what that looks like for you personally. It may look like some of you getting on a plane. And going somewhere that is hostile to the gospel, that does not have the gospel there. It may be that for you. It is wherever the whispers of God take you, that is the journey. That is the risk-taking, God-saturated, joy-filled life God has for you. And so a whisper of God could sound like, at work Tuesday, speak this, say this. Talk about the gospel here. It could look like this. It's Labor Day. People come out from behind the the caves and, and come out to the street on Labor Day. It's amazing. And maybe risk on Labor Day is getting to know your neighbors. It's real simple on a practical level. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to you and you obeying. That is what we want here. As a, as a corporate body, Stonegate, this is our commitment to each other. That as a body, as the Holy Spirit speaks to us, that we obey that. That we jump in the middle of that. That we move with that. That we go with that. That we advance with that. And listen, everybody in here, I think you want a courageous life. I, I don't think anybody wants to look back at life and say that, was a, that life would look like a coward. I think all of us want a courageous life. We want to look back over seasons in the long haul of our life and say, my life was marked by courageous attempts. And the only way to do that is to obey the voice of God. However he speaks, whenever he speaks, and whatever he says do, that we obey it. That we don't fight against it, we don't rail against it, that we live in it, we obey it. Does that mark your life? So we're going to sing and kind of close up this morning. And I, I really think there needs to be repentance in this room from retreat. There needs to be repentance of I have turned and I have walked down the road of retreat. And repentance looks like, God, I surrender and I am obeying. Whatever you say, whenever you say it, whatever it leads to, I am obeying. I think there needs to be authentic repentance from that. Repentance from holding on so tightly to our family, so tightly to our paycheck, so tightly to all these other things as opposed to the mission of God. And so however God is leading this morning, I would just encourage you to respond rightly. We're not going to drag this out, but you can use this stage, this front as an altar. You can use your chair. But I'm going to invite you to respond appropriately to the movement of God this morning. God, we love you, and God, I pray over the lives in this room. God, I pray for courageous, risk-taking, daring lives. 
God, help us to obey when you speak. Help us to be willing to take any sort of temporal risk for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing?